Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Johanna Hayes has spent almost two terms representing Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Will she easily win re-election in 2022? The National Republican Party has its eyes on her district and a Republican opponent has already emerged. Political observers predict the 5th will be Connecticut's most competitive congressional race. Today, where we live, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes joins us. There's a lot happening in Washington. We'll talk about the latest news, including Tuesday's agreement to approve the president's $3.5 trillion budget plan and a voting rights bill in response to voting restrictions in Republican-led states. But first, we'll talk about issues closer to home and take your calls, too. What questions do you have for Congresswoman Johanna Hayes? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes is still in Washington joining us on Zoom today. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me today. Now, we'll be talking about domestic and international issues coming up, including uh, your response to what's happening in Afghanistan. But I wanted to focus a bit on Connecticut right now. Uh, you know, first, the school year is uh, just upon us, and it's another year in a pandemic. I know you and your husband at one point had COVID. Can I ask how you both are doing? We're doing well. Thanks so much for asking. There's always, um, my husband always points out that he thinks that any symptom he has is a long-term, you know, symptom of COVID. So we watch very carefully, but our family as well. Thank you. And when we think about the fifth district, a sprawling district, what are you seeing in terms of COVID cases right now and, and breakthrough cases? Well, I think just like what we've seen in the whole state, um, I was excited at one point when Litchfield County was the only county that was still considered and then they went on the list as significant risk for infection. So we're watching very carefully. I think our priority, in not only in the fifth, but in the whole state, should be to keep things open, to keeping our economy open and doing whatever we need to do to make that happen, whether that's getting vaccinated, wearing masks, limiting capacity, just really making sure that we don't go into what we saw this time last year. We see that uh, Pfizer's vaccine has received full approval from the FDA. Uh, there is hope by uh, some officials and public health experts that we see more Americans uh, taking this vaccine. Uh, but I'm wondering when we think about vaccine hesitancy in even places like cities in the in the fifth district and Waterbury, New Britain, uh, what's your take on you know how to communicate this with residents that you know, the vaccine uh, is important for them, and what are some of the things you're hearing from them? Well, I think all of us should be focused on acknowledging people's concerns and not preaching to them or talking down to them. I'm not really sure, even with. Pfizer and full FDA approval. I, I'm not really sure if that will be the turning point and people will all of a sudden get vaccinated because for some people, their concerns extended beyond that. 
So I guess really making sure that we are providing good information, making sure that people know where to go to ask their questions and have them answered, making sure that we are providing access to the vaccine, to the information that is necessary, and then really trying to instill in people that we have a responsibility to protect each other. I've been shocked almost at the number of people I know personally who are not anti-vaxxers, who I feel like are reasonable people who have some serious concerns about taking this vaccine. So I'm really just employing every approach to ask people, well, what is it that you need to know? What is it that still gives you hesitancy? How can I help you close that gap or provide that information for you? Um, but blaming people, shouting at people, getting upset with people, I'm not sure that's the right answer. I think that we really have to acknowledge that people have serious concerns, um, but also just really reiterate the necessity of getting vaccinated, of wearing masks, of doing what we need to do to keep other people safe and ourselves as well. Uh, we know that the uh, mask mandate in schools in Connecticut will expire, uh, I think, September 30th, uh, unless uh, the governor uh, and his uh, um, administration decide to extend that. I mean, what's your take? Do you think that's a reasonable decision for uh, mask mandates to go from one town to the next and not be statewide? Well, I think we're all tired of wearing masks. I know I am. Um, but we're left in an untenable situation. The American Pediatric Association just recommended a few weeks ago that children should wear well-fitting masks at all times as a way to mitigate the impacts of this virus. I think it's very difficult to try to do anything other than that. When it comes to children in schools, they don't have the choice of getting vaccinated. Um, the vaccine has not been approved for children under 12, I think it is. Um, so many of those kids, many of those parents are going to rely on the fact that the teachers, the employees in the schools are vaccinated and that their children are safe. So I think it is appropriate for the governor when it comes to schools to say that in Connecticut, uh, children are required to or school um, personnel and children are required to wear masks in school. They don't have an option. So it's up to us as the adults and the leaders to have the responsibility of protecting them and keeping them safe. You can join our conversation with Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Robert tweeted and wants to hear what your position is on providing school options, such as in-person or remote schooling during the pandemic. Uh, he acknowledges that state and federal policymakers are pushing districts away from even offering remote options this year, despite high proportions of Black and Latino families choosing this option last year. How do you respond? Well, I think that state, states and even local districts should steer clear of absolutes at this time. We don't know what this virus is going to do. If you remember this time last year, there was an announcement that schools would open full-time in person. And by October, just about every district was in a remote or hybrid um, type of model. So I think we really have to listen to the science and watch what happens. As a member of Congress, I think my role in that is we provided the resources. We um, authorized $120 billion for states and, and local municipalities to open schools safely and mitigate the impacts of COVID. I think we all know that the best thing for our children is in-person learning with their teachers in schools. But we also have to keep in mind if a situation arises where that is not safe, 
there should be other options. So right now, I think our state is on track to open full-time in-person and put in all the mitigating factors. Connecticut got about a hundred, I'm sorry, Connecticut got a billion dollars from the American Rescue Plan for schools to be able to do that safely. So I think that districts need to put in every measure in place. Um, I think that parents need to agree that students should have unmasked when they go into, into schools. Um, we were not fully prepared for hybrid or remote learning last year. Many districts, many students did not have devices. Many students never logged on. Many teachers did not have the professional development or support in order to do that effectively. And we saw just issues with mental health, with um, nutrition, food security, all those things, you know, those services that are provided in school. So I think our, first, our best option is for kids to be in school full time in person, but that can only happen if, if people, if all of us do our part to keep them safe, if all of us agree that, you know, getting vaccinated and wearing masks is our best option to make sure kids are safe once they're in school. Again, you can join us as we hear from Congresswoman Johanna Hayes here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677, if you have a question for her. Let's talk about uh, 2022. Uh, we know that former State Senator George Logan recently announced he wants to challenge you in the 2022 congressional election. Uh, have you officially announced that you're, that you're running for re-election, Congresswoman? I have not officially announced. I mean, I just got elected. I'm working on legislating. I haven't switch to campaign mode, but I fully intend to continue to run for this seat to represent the people of the 5th District. So tell us uh, your, your thought process of why you want to continue for a third term. Well, uh, first of all, I think that I have delivered for the people in this district. Right now, we are dealing with a global pandemic. Um, in Congress, we delivered relief in the American Rescue Plan, which no Republican voted for. And this was relief that my constituents needed in every community, in every sector, whether it was uh, restaurants, uh, shuttered venues, schools, everything. We delivered the relief that was necessary. But also the way that I am legislating, I'm doing exactly what I promised constituents that I would do. And that is making sure that no one is excluded from the process, that we're not leaving communities behind making sure that um, we are providing equitable access to all of the programs that we're talking about. Uh, these are the things that I ran on. When I look at my constituent services, we have brought back over $12 million to constituents in this district, closed 85% of the cases, and really have heard from people who have never engaged with their congressional offices. I am a part of the fifth, I'm of this community. I've lived, worked, worshiped, invested in this community my whole life. So I completely understand the challenges of people in this district and I have legislated on their behalf. And, you know, just a few short months ago, they elected me overwhelmingly after having the opportunity to look at my record and what I've done. So I think the people in this district are happy with the work that I've done and I continue, I plan to continue to do that. Um, are you referencing that the uh, Republican that wants to run against you, George Logan, he doesn't yet live in the fifth district, Congresswoman? Well, um, I haven't, I mean, there's a process. Anyone can can um, declare that they want to run. I think that um, just like I did, I put my name in the hat, put a platform of what I would like to do and ran a robust campaign to ask people to choose me as their leader. 
in November or, or as their elected representative in November, the people in this district had the opportunity to look at that and they elected me overwhelmingly. The people in his district had the opportunity to do the same and they did not elect him. So I've heard um, just snippets of him saying, you know, I ha he has touch points in the district. I am fully immersed in this district. I have always lived and worked in this district, paid taxes, bought a home, educated my children, uh, worshiped, just everything. Attended community meetings as a member of the community, not a member of the board, but just been a part of the community. So he has the right to run. Um, Congress, uh, the, the constitution says that you don't have to live in the district. But from what I've heard, his reasoning is our Connecticut delegation needs to be diversified. If that were the case, and if that's truly what he believed, he would run in his own district. Um, the third district also has a Democratic representative. So I think this is a little bit more than I just want to see diversity in the delegation. Um, it's about the title and the seat. And that's not why I got into this race. That's not why I'm, I'm doing this work. I'm doing it because I'm of the community. I care about the people. Um, I want to make sure that every person is represented. And um, I, 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 I don't know enough about, uh, about him to, to make a comment on that, but anybody can run. And I think that I will give the people just um, a reason to select me again to represent this district based on not only the work that I've done in the past, but the work that I continue to do and will do moving forward. Your district is considered purple uh, when you think about uh, the the demographic uh, makeup and uh, party affiliation. Uh, someone tweeted at us that they see you as a rubber stamp for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So how do you respond to that criticism from Republicans that may be in your district? Well, first of all, I this district is, when we talk about the demographics of it, it's less than 5% black. And when I initially started to run, people said she'll never be able to um, get support in this district outside of the cities. And I did that. Um, the Northwest corner is probably some of my strongest support, farmers, people in rural communities. And it's because I run on issues. I talk about the things that are important to me and my family. And those things are generally important to my constituents and their families. It doesn't matter their demographics or their race or their party affiliation. I've heard Republicans say she's a rubber stamp for, for Speaker Pelosi. And the thing I would say to that is those are just top lines. I've heard things like I vote with the Speaker 100% of the time. First of all, Speaker Pelosi does not vote. As Speaker of the House, she only votes on, it's her prerogative, she only votes on historic um, votes. Like yesterday, she voted on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So I vote as a Democrat, and those are the, the values that I ran on. So I would say let's double down on the things that I have voted on. Like I said, I voted on the American Rescue Plan to, del to deliver relief for the people in this district. I've voted on things like lowering the cost of prescription drugs. I voted on things like the PRO Act to protect the right to organize for uh, our labor unions. I voted on supplemental um, assistance and funding for Capitol Police um, when my Republican colleagues did that. So. Um, it really is uh, just not true to say that I vote with Nancy Pelosi because Nancy Pelosi doesn't vote. I vote on the values that people in this district care about. 
I vote on the issues that I ran on. I vote on the things that families need to make sure that we are closing those large equity gaps that exist in our district. And I will continue to do that. But I do that in a way where I listen to all my constituents. I acknowledge that there are differing perspectives and opinions on these things, but I have to do and, and cast votes that uh, make the most difference and do the most good for the people in this district. And if there's any particular vote that anyone has a question about, I can tell them, you know, to the letter, and this is why I voted for that. That has nothing to do with Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi does not, I mean, I'm not really sure how people think it works behind the scenes, but there is very little communication in that way. I've actually voted against uh, Pelosi on some significant things like, um, you know, the exemption for General Lloyd Austin. I was one of the few Democrats who voted against that because I felt like we shouldn't be making exemptions for such um, significant positions uh, in ways like that. And there were some, are some other key votes that I just felt like this does not align with my values. But for the most part, I vote on the things that I ran on. Uh, if, if anyone can talk about a vote where I ran on a different set of values or a different, um, in, for a different position, I would be interested to hear that. But instead of just saying she votes with Pelosi, let's talk about what I vote for. Again, you can join us if you have a question for Congresswoman Johanna Hayes here on Where We Live. If you live in the 5th Congressional District, again, uh, that seat up for re-election in 2022, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, before we head to break and coming up, we're going to be talking about some of the more recent votes. Just yesterday on this uh, $3.5 trillion uh, spending plan, also that voting rights bill that you referenced. But I want to talk about uh, something you shared on Twitter recently about trackers, uh, people hired uh, from the other party to hang around outside your office and take uh, uh, recordings of you. Why did you decide to share that? Well, first of all, I just want to start by saying I did not share that because I am thin-skinned. I grew up in public housing in the 80s and 90s in one of the most difficult housing projects in the state. And I probably saw more on the walk from my bus stop to my building than most people can imagine in a lifetime, most elected officials. So this has nothing to do with being thin-skinned. What I did see was legitimate outlets sharing clips that were put out by NRCC trackers, and they were completely out of context. And when I started to talk to people, even supporters, constituents, whoever, people really had no idea what a tracker was or what that meant. So I wanted to pull back the curtain a little and educate people on these are people who are hired to do this. They're not constituents. They're not journalists. And just for people to see how overwhelming it is, just yesterday, as we we're going to take these very important votes, there were three trackers following me, and they are getting increasingly agitated, increasingly provocative. In fact, one of them I started recording them because I want to document the entirety of of the interaction. And this young man, he pushed my phone away. At the point where on my way to going to work, I am being obstructed in that way or attempted to be distracted. I think people need to know that so that when they see these clips, they understand the full context of what is happening. Um, I've never 
um, avoided answering questions from constituents. When I have town halls, when I have open meetings, I don't filter questions. I want to hear from people, in fact, who disagree with me because it helps me to inform my decision making and really understand where people are coming from. But this is different. And the fact that so many people in my circle had no idea what a tracker was, I thought that there, are, there must be more people who, who also don't know. And as I've heard this play out over the last few weeks, I've heard commentators say, well, this is part of the job and this is something you should get used to. First of all, no one should have to deal with that on any job. And part of the problem is that we've accepted it for too long. So I'm not going to accept it. And I, and I want to, I wanted to educate people on what this is and what it looks like. It does not deter me from doing my work or mean that, like I said, that I'm thin skinned, but I want people to understand and appreciate this is what you're looking at when you see these things put out. I'm glad that you brought up uh, people's uh, different reactions uh, to uh, when you shared that. Uh, we had uh, George Logan, again, who's the Republican who wants to run in the fifth against you. Uh, right around the time when you had tweeted that out, he was on the show. And this is what he said about um, that uh, tweet. Uh, Congresswoman Hayes, welcome to the uh, the big leagues. I don't know what you th you know, thought you were going you're getting into running for uh, Congress. Uh, I deal with the same thing uh, myself. I'm, I'm I've never been a, a Congress person, uh, but uh, you know, here in the state legislature on election day, I have folks with bullhorns uh, yelling at me while at, while I was at the at the polls. I've got trolls on social media. So he speaks to the fact that this is happening on both sides, that the Democrats also employ trackers to follow Republican candidates. So how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I would say that as a sitting U.S. Congresswoman who has had to legislate through the longest government shutdown, a global pandemic, two impeachments, and uh, reopening schools safely, all of these things, in response to a former state legislator, I would say that I'm already in the big leagues and I've been here for, for you know quite some time and earned my legs in this space. Um, what is happening is very different than a troll on social media. Um, people have the right to have their opinion. Um, and when I put out that post, I was very clear to say a political tracker is someone hired by, a by an opposing political party because I recognize that Democrats do the same thing. But I have made the decision that that's not the type of campaign I want to run. That's not, you know, I've never run a negative ad. I've never run a negative TV ad. I've never sent out negative mailers because my position is I want to give people something to vote for. I want to present a platform, the issues I want to run on and give them you know, as they are exploring their options, give them something to vote for. So I recognize that other people use trackers and that it is an accepted part of the political world. I'm saying I choose not to um, participate in that. And I want to educate people, again, who have never been in this world, who don't yeah. understand that that happens. That's what, that's what my goal there is. You're listening to Congresswoman Johanna Hayes here on Where We Live. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about some recent votes in Washington related to the budget, to voting rights, uh, and also infrastructure, potentially in September. If you have a question for Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithancho. If you live in the sprawling 5th Congressional District, here's your chance to talk to your Congresswoman, Johanna Hayes. She's my guest today on Zoom. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So let's talk about what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden is sticking with that August 31st deadline at right now, um, going against what some of the allies, even what some of our part of our delegation is saying that uh, August 31st, maybe we need to stay longer until the allies uh, that helped us during the war, as well as interpreters and translators for the military until they're evacuated. What's your whole response to how this has played out, Congresswoman? Well, first of all, this is a very complex situation. And I think that we should all, I am singularly focused on completing this mission and making sure that we get our Americans allies out safely. And then and I look forward to Congress uh, fulfilling their oversight responsibility to see what happened and what went wrong here. I think so many people would agree that we needed to end this 20 year war. And I want to acknowledge our service members who fought so bravely in Afghanistan and just the difficulty of removing a 20 year footprint over a vast territory in a short couple of months with no U.S. casualties. Uh, I say all that, but I also have to say that I have some serious concerns about the way this was this, the way this happened. We cannot leave our allies behind. We cannot leave, you know, the translators, the people on the ground, the people who have assisted us over the last 20 years. And I'm not really sure how that is going to happen. We had a briefing yesterday, and it it sounds like the administration may feel like they have some leverage in that area um, when that date does come. And obviously they're operating with more information than I have, or even the general public has. So I I trust our leaders. But again, you know, President Trump negotiated an agreement with the Taliban with no conditions. And we are now left to figure out what that means and what that looks like. I still support withdrawal from the region because I think this war needed to end. I voted to uh, repeal the authorization for military force, the 2002 AUMF, because I don't think that a president should have that full authority, but we cannot leave people behind. So I am, I'm very concerned about that part of it. And I, I support um, us staying in that region until we get every American and every ally out of this region safely. We cannot abandon anyone. 
You mentioned Lloyd Austin earlier, and so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the fact that you know this uh, withdrawal was announced um, months uh, ago, and the fact that it has uh, devolved in the way that it has. I mean, what culpability do you have in terms that you think the military leaders have uh, in this plan? I think they have complete responsibility for it. I mean, like I said, I did not support um, changing the rule for General Austin. However, he is the secretary at this point, and and I support him as the secretary. Um, I would like to, what I would like to hear is an acknowledgement that they didn't expect it to devolve so quickly. Um, yes, we all agree. We agree. I don't know that all agree is the right way to say it, but we agree that this war needed to end, and we needed to bring our American sons and daughters back home and withdraw from the re region. But to have a blind eye and say that we did everything correctly, I, I think is just, it's just not true. It's just not true. I mean, we're seeing these images. We're watching what happened. I don't know. I mean, I'm not military personnel. I don't have the same intelligence that they're working with. Um, so I guess that'll be part of our congressional oversight moving forward to kind of parse this apart and see what happened. But I don't think that anybody can say that we are completely happy with the way this is working out when we are watching these these horrific images of of children and families and women um just in in these desperate situations of americans still on the ground of our embassy personnel being evacuated um i don't think anybody can say that this is exact this is moving forward exactly the way we've planned it Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk with Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. I wanted to talk about some recent votes just happening yesterday. Uh, top Democratic lawmakers in the House uh, moving their plan forward to get the president's $3.5 trillion social and environmental budget bill approved. Uh, tell us about this vote and, and what exactly it means. Uh, I'm looking at Politico, uh, where it says that the budget bill is deemed to have passed, but with not a dollar actually approved for anything just yet, Congresswoman. Right. So, so what we voted on this week, we voted on the rule to move forward. So the the actual text and the, the final language will be worked on over the next couple of weeks. There are some top lines and some things that we've been talking about over time. Um, and I'm very excited about much of what is in the budget bill. We have to legislate differently. Um, we have to make sure that the wealthiest individuals pay their fair share in taxes and Biden's proposal is that no one who makes um, under $400,000 will see a dime or an increase in taxes. But there are things that I would like to see, you know, the child tax credit. I'd like to see that made permanent. That is um, a tax cut for middle class. It's not the government giving anybody money. That's a tax cut. I'd like to see expansions to Medicare and Medicaid to include vision, eye, dental. I, there's money in there for conservation and forestry. Um, some climate initiatives in the ag budget. So all of these things are, are priorities that I'm happy to see. We at least the conversation is back on the table and we can begin to um, legislate in a way that meets our modern communities to really address the needs of our communities. And again, make sure families are not left behind. Uh, we talk about people returning to work. For so many people, the obstacle there is child care and what that looks like. Um, this, I, I support universal childcare. These are things that I've supported all along. So to see these 
just still as part of the conversation is encouraging and the committees will go back um, and draft the, the language over the next couple of weeks, but um, it's still on the table, which is good. That's the vote we took yesterday, which effectively says we can move forward to the next step. Talk about the dynamics uh, within the U.S. House. Again, uh, when we think about um, this this deal being reached, uh, uh, there's uh, moderates uh, that are a little worried about the price tag here. You've got progressives who want to see more done in the spending package. You know, a lot is at stake for 2022. How would you describe uh, the relationships right now? Um. There's a lot going on, and I think that part of being in this legislative body is compromise, is collaboration, is collegiality. Um, I think people who are not willing to do that should not be in this role, you know, be in an executive branch where you're the only decision makers. Um, But again, as we are doing these things, we have to think about the people in our communities and make sure that everybody feels the touch of what is happening in our government. I struggle sometimes when people run on these platforms of, you know, everything about government is bad and they want to um, run on these anti-government platforms. If you don't even believe in government, if you don't even believe that that government is there to help people, then I don't know how you can become a part of this body and be effective and actually work on behalf of people. So I maintain that position and I listen to the people in this community, listen to the people in my district and try to make sure that I'm bringing all of those voices into the conversation. Last year, when we were negotiating the CARES Act, when we were negotiating the American Rescue Plan, I can tell you with fidelity that this legislation had teacher prints all over it because I made sure I let the speaker and leadership and my colleagues know this is what schools need to reopen safely. I made sure that I elevated my voice in all of those conversations and other people who had different areas of expertise did the same. That's the only way we get um, legislation that affects our entire community is if we have these diverse perspectives and people from all backgrounds coming together, willing to listen, share, and legislate on behalf of their constituents. Um, And and I think that's what we're seeing in in these legislative packages. And for some people that's uncomfortable because they don't wanna see any sort of change. They don't wanna see uh, our, our reach expanded. They don't want to see more people included into the conversation. Um, and that's our job to, to protect those people. Um, we took a vote yesterday on the Voting Rights Act. Every administration has reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. The last person to do it was President George Bush. So to see no Republican vote to protect uh, the right to vote, um, to make sure that 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 as Congress, we make sure that everybody who is eligible to vote is not restricted or have barriers in place is is deeply disheartening. Um, So we have to make sure we're putting in leaders who who believe in those things, who believe that all communities have value and will work hard uh, to protect the voices of the excluded. And that's exactly what I've done in Congress. And that's what I will continue to do. Rashard's calling in from Meriden. Rashard, are you there? Yes. Yes. I'm Go ahead. Go ahead. So my, I didn't have a question. It was more of a comment, and uh, it was uh, a very, very powerful to hear you uh, speak a little bit about the vaccines and um, how you feel about people that are not so 
not anti-vax, but more uh, have hesitancy and would just want more information and things like that. And it's it's very good to hear you say that, you know, not badgering people and forcing them and shaming them is, is not going to be the way to go to, to drive anyone into, um, you know, a more positive thought about the vaccine or our current situation and just kind of like that knowledge and information is, is more powerful than, than uh, shaming people. Congresswoman? Well, I appreciate you saying that. Like I said, I was surprised as I talked to friends, colleagues, even loved ones on their reasons for not getting vaccinated. And these are not people who are anti-vaxxers. These are not people who are outside with signs holding it up. These are people who are in their homes quietly contemplating every aspect. And these are people that I love. So when you have a loved one saying to you, this is this is what concerns me. It's very, very difficult for you, for you to badger them. I've heard former students who believe in science, who trust uh, their leaders, who are for the first time in their lives really beginning to question um, their place in the world and what these things mean. And, and their questions are valid. Their questions are valid. So I think we have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to provide those answers. Um, it, it's frustrating at times because I do believe that if, if we had reached the threshold and more people got vaccinated and everybody was doing what is necessary, um, that we could um, go back to normal if, if, if there is such thing as going back to normal. But I also recognize that people have legitimate reasons. So we have to make sure that we are acknowledging those reasons, getting them the information, um, helping them, providing them with whatever is necessary to help them to make that decision. Um, so I am very mindful of that. And I, I listen to people and I want to hear them. However, there has to be a line where um, your individual liberties infringe upon someone else. And I think school is one of those places where um, someone can have questions about vaccines or masks. But in order to keep everyone safe, we should have masks in school because children can't get vaccinated. So people have to be willing to have some give and take here to say, okay, well, I'm not vaccinated, but I will wear a mask because I recognize that I have a responsibility to protect the people in this community. Um, so it, it just, it's unfortunate that we are in this place, but we have to acknowledge where we are and just continue to work towards solutions and not just badger people. We're out of time. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, thank you for joining us today. We hope you come back in a few months. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. This was great. This is where we live. Coming up after the break, we get analysis from the Connecticut Mayor's Capital Bureau Chief, Mark Pazniokas. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Mark Pazniokas, CT Mirror Capital Bureau Chief. Mark, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Lucy. 
So we just heard from Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. Uh, she says she intends to run again. I know that you've reported at uh, the Connecticut Mirror that she's already banked $1.2 million for her reelection to a third term. Uh, tell me what stood out to you when she talked about her potential opponent. Well, I think uh, what we heard today was a preview of 2022. Um, you, her line uh, in response to her being a surrogate for Nancy Pelosi is, I think, something we're going to hear again and again. Quote, I vote on the things I ran on. It's not a bad line. Um, it's a challenge to Republicans to say, okay, where did she um, break with what she ran on to support Nancy Pelosi? Uh, and she also had a series of subtle digs at Republicans in general and George Logan in particular about the fact Republicans have voted against uh, a number of things that have turned out to be quite popular, uh, primarily the American Rescue Plan. It was, as she pointed out, there were no Republican votes for that. Um, she could have gone further. The Republicans did everything they could to delay and obstruct that. And... George Logan is going to be faced with questions about how would you have voted? Um, when he announced his candidacy, I asked him, uh, you know, about uh, at that point, it was the uh, Invest America Act, which was the House infrastructure plan that had uh, been approved. And he hedged. He did not say whether he would have voted for it against it. He indicated he might have sought changes, but what a, a freshman member of Congress could do as far as changing it, uh, you know, there's not much there. So I think I think you got a good feel for um, uh, Johanna Hayes, where she, how she is going to position herself, how she's communicating what she is doing in Washington. And again, in a somewhat cordial way, I think she also signaled about how she's going to push back at George Logan, if indeed he is the Republican nominee. You know, she's uh, often says she wants to run positive campaigns. We anticipate that the National Republican Party will be putting in a lot of money uh, in this uh, potential race uh, if George Logan is indeed the endorsed candidate. And so I wonder if you can talk about how that'll play out. Uh, again, George Logan, he was on Where We Live a few weeks ago. He is a black man, a former state senator, uh, lives in Ansonia, but he plans to move, he says. <laughs> okay, so... Uh... One of the things about whether or not this truly ends up as a targeted race, um, right now there's, uh, there's more smoke than reality on that. Okay. The National Republican Campaign Committee has dipped its toes uh, into the district, but not, has not spent any significant money. Um, they have targeted her um, on paper. They have really not committed any funds, other than the fact they do put her tracker on her. And we can talk about that because what she has experienced is something relatively new. Trackers, uh, in my experience in Connecticut politics, have been a relatively passive uh, instrument. It's opposition research. It's one campaign wanting to know what the other candidate is saying. Yes, if uh, there's a gaffe, you want video of it so you can use it, but it's also intel. In a campaign setting, these, um, these trackers report back daily as to this is what the opposition is doing and saying. What Congresswoman Hayes is experiencing 
is more uh, a bit of harassment. Um, the tracker has tried to provoke her, has been shouting questions. Historically, again, the trackers have been a more passive uh, instrument to just simply record. This is different. This is an effort to, again, provoke her into saying or doing something that's going to be a viral moment. And that, I think, is what she spoke out against. Mm -hmm. And we'll see if that continues, you know, when she's back in Connecticut. Again, that that stuff has not played well here. But we'll see if that's really the new normal uh, in campaign politics. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, if I wanted to switch gears and, and talk more about Afghanistan, uh, we brought it up with Congresswoman Hayes, uh, but you've also covered what Connecticut's two senators uh, have said, uh, just uh, really disagreeing with President Biden's uh, plans uh, to leave, I believe, August 31st. Uh, talk more about the point of contention. Sure. Um, you know, let's take Chris Murphy, who has been a, a staunch defender of sticking to uh not sticking to a staunch defender of the decision to withdraw. And he is now in an awkward position of now taking, uh, of, of criticizing the president over the August 31 deadline. Um, clearly, uh, the bulk of the American population uh, is horrified. The polling shows it, it is not uh, terribly impressed by the Biden administration's handling of this, rightly so, based on what we've seen. On the other hand, there is strong polling support for ending the 20-year war. So I think the political, the political question here is a year from now, what is Afghanistan going to look like? Ultimately, how did the evacuation go? What will there be horror stories in the news next summer about Afghanistan, about interpreters in Afghanistan who helped the U.S. military who are now being um, harassed or worse? And so that's the X factor politically. Um, the poll that came out yesterday, USA Today and Suffolk University, was really a red flag. Um, Democrats, particularly Democrats like Johanna Hayes, who are in uh, what on paper is a competitive district and midterm elections. Uh, whoever has the White House, it quite often is bad news uh, for incumbents in Congress. You know, Nancy Pelosi is going to be hard pressed to maintain her slim majority. Uh, now, Johanna Hayes was elected in a in a midterm election uh, when President Trump was in office. Um, so she benefited from that, presumably to some degree, although there has been a consistency in her election results, uh, 55%, 56%. Um, but, you know, so that's what you see unfolding here. You see, I think, genuine concern about U.S. policy, about uh, a humanitarian crisis, uh, but underscored is a political uh, as a political concern as well as to what Joe Biden's population is going to look like next summer when we probably revisit this conversation, Lucy. Now, he gets great, great marks on the American Rescue Plan. Um, and you're going to I think you're going to see Johanna Hayes and others continually talk about this is what this administration has done for the American people in a difficult time. Um, I supported it. Every Republican did not. 
what would my Republican opponent do? And, you know, you'll see that again on the Voting Rights Act. You know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, George Logan is, is a black man. What is he going to say about voting rights? He has pretty much stuck to the Republican Party line talking about concerns about uh, fraud and whatnot. Um, but again, this will be um, a little bit of a different campaign than we typically see in Connecticut. Uh, when we think about the the Republican Party here in our state, you know they had a, a big win, right, uh, with uh, Ryan Fazio. I think he's uh, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, being Fazio. sworn Fazio, Fazio yeah. being sworn in uh, tomorrow, uh, representing uh, Republican representing the the Greenwich uh, Stamford area. Was that the kind of momentum they need? I know that was just a state senate seat flip, but as we look to twenty twenty two, Mark. Well, there were a couple of things here. Yeah, you, you should never overreach in interpreting a special election. And the Republican state chairman, Ben Proto, uh, subscribes to that theory as well, I might add. But um, one of the things that was clear there is that the animus to President Trump did not drive as many people to the polls in Greenwich as had been the case uh, when Alex Kasser was first elected, unseating Scott France uh, in 2018. Now, it was a, it was a close race. Uh, Fazio won with 50.1% of the vote. Um, special elections, again, they're, they're kind of different animals. It's how do you get out the vote at a time of year when people are not tuned into politics, uh, the turn the turnout in Stanford, the Stanford portion of the district, which is heavily Democratic, was not uh, was not what the Democrats needed. Um, so there is clearly, I think, a concern about how jazzed up the base still will be as President Trump recedes somewhat uh, in the rearview mirror. On the other hand, President Trump is doing everything he can to <laughs> stay in the public eye. So, you know, we'll see what that looks like again next summer. But yes, that that was, you know, it was a real morale builder for a Republican Party that has not had terribly much to celebrate um, since Trump took office and things turned very badly. Remember, the Republicans in the General Assembly had mm. had an incredible uh, winning streak. Um, they right. had an awful, awful experience in 2008 with the Obama landslide, but they pulled to a t up to a tie in 20 mm. after the 2016 race. They were five short of a majority in the House. And then it all and went Mark, sideways. Right. Mark, thank you for that context. Always a pleasure. Mark Pazniokas uh, from the thank Connecticut you, Mayor. Bye -bye. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Matt Dwyer produced today's show.